Well, this morning I'm going to be moving into this new series that we are doing for the season of Lent, which is going to focus on the miracles of Jesus. But let me give a little bit of a setup for this because uh, we're, we're going to be looking at a specific, a certain set of miracles that comes to us. In fact, of all the miracles of Jesus that we could choose, I'm going to focus our attention just on the Gospel of John and miracles that come from the Gospel of John. So for the next seven weeks getting up till Easter, we're going to be looking at examples of miracles that come from just the Gospel of John. We'll be spending some time in John's Gospel that way. And Beyond that, maybe a little setup to how this goes, that, that there are only seven miracles in the Gospel of John. Out of all of the activities of Jesus that the Gospel writer could choose from, he very intentionally selects seven examples, seven miracles that take place there. So before we get into this passage for today, before I dive into that, let me take just a few moments here at the front end to give a little bit of context around how it is that we read these miracles from John, from John's gospel, and understand the context around that, okay? So a couple things that maybe show some of the features around miracles in the gospel of John. The first feature that I want us to, to recognize is that John himself does not call them miracles. He calls them signs, and that's significant. Significant because John is telling us something. He's telling us that these supernatural activities of Jesus that John is selecting and pointing out are all meant to point to something else, that they're signs that direct us towards something bigger, something greater that's out there. That's the first thing, okay? The second thing that we see is that these miracles of Jesus all have a purpose the way John writes it. In fact, John tells us what it is, and I'm jumping way forward to give you just a verse that comes from chapter 20. John says this in chapter 20. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see what John is doing there? He's tipping his hand and he's, tell, he's telling us, this is why I'm telling you these stories about Jesus. This is what these signs, these miracles are meant to tell you. That Jesus is the Messiah that you may believe in him. So, so that's the second feature that we see about these miracles that come to us in John, that they're all meant to show in some way Jesus as the Messiah. And then the third thing that we see in this is that out of the seven that are there, it's where they are placed. Now, we've talked about the significance of the number seven before. In fact, we, we just finished a series from Psalm 23 looking at the seven scenes in Psalm 23. And here we go again, another series of seven. Seven is that number in the Bible that symbolically captures the activity of God in his creation. That when things happen in seven, so often it points to what God is doing in a supernatural way in his created world, among his created people. That's what seven tips us towards. So here it's not a mistake again that John chooses seven miracles. But where he places them. So here's a piece about John's gospel in general that's going to help us. John, the gospel of John is 21 chapters long. 
chapter 1 and chapter 21 are sort of introduction and conclusion, right? Beginning and then sort of wrapping it up. So chapters 2 through 20 are where the action happens in John's gospel. And it divides in half. That the first half of this, roughly chapters 2 through 11 are activities that all take place at various points in Jesus' ministry, covering about a three-year time span. And all seven of the miracles that we're going to be looking at in this series happen in that block. All seven examples of miracles that happen in the Gospel of John happen in the first half of the Gospel, between chapters 2 and chapter 11, up till chapter 12. Chapters 12 through 20 are one week. So the entire second half of John's gospel is a one-week time frame, beginning at Palm Sunday and going through Easter. That's significant. It's significant because it tells us with what I've already mentioned about the purpose for these signs and miracles, that everything that John says in that first half of his gospel is all meant to point towards one week. One week that unfolds in the second half of John's gospel. So we'll look at it in that time frame, in that light, understanding that, all right, John is giving us examples of miracles that are pointing us towards Jesus as the Messiah, and in some way, all seven of these are meant to point forward to that one-week time frame from Palm Sunday to Easter and the events which unfold there in the second half of John's gospel. That's our time frame that we're working with on this, and that's how we'll understand these as they come through. All right, so that's, that's the setup, that's the background, that's the understanding of how we read this as we go forward, okay? Today, then, the first miracle that we're going to look at that comes in the Gospel of John comes in John chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading the first 11 verses, John chapter 2, where it says this. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to do. Nearby stood six stone watering jars, the kind that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the, wa- fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, in, in our time and in our world, there, there is this trend that goes on 
of secret menus. I don't know if you if you're in on this or aware of how this works. That chain restaurants, you know, the the kind of place where you can go into anyone anywhere in the country and it's the same menu everywhere you go. That a lot of these places have a secret menu, things that are not listed on the main menu, but you go into any one of them, you order it, and they'll know what you're talking about, and they'll make it for you. I'm not sure if you're aware of these things or not. Because the internet, it's not really so secret, right? But it's out there. So, for example, Starbucks has all kinds of drink combinations that you can order that are not on the menu, listed anyway, but the secret menu, including, if you want, a drink for your dog called the Puppuccino. You can get that. Yeah, someone's going to go do that now, right? (laughs) You can go to Burger King and you can order Frings. Frings are a side of half French fries, half onion rings. If you can't make up your mind which one, get them both. They'll do that. You can go to Chick-fil-A and you can get the fried club sandwich, which is not on their menu, but it's sort of like um, a larger and unhealthier, but way tastier version of their regular chicken club. But you can get that there. Now, If you're truly adventurous, you can go to McDonald's and you can order the land, sea, and air. Think Big Mac, but instead of just beef patties, it's beef patty, filet of fish patty, chicken patty, all on the same sandwich. If you're adventurous. Now you're curious though, right? Secret menus are those things where, okay, only people who sort of have this uh, selective knowledge, who know it's there, can have access to that and, and get whatever that secret thing is behind that. Well, we see a story here today in which Jesus pulls up a secret menu, right? A menu that wasn't made known. But in this story, it's not just the select few who understand who get it. Even though it's a secret menu that's not shared with everyone, Jesus gives that for everyone. They all get it, even though they don't see or know or understand what it is that Jesus has done or how that's taken place. So this story takes place in Cana. Let me give a little bit of background to this. Cana uh, is in the hill country. So here's a picture of Cana as it exists today. So it's in the region of Galilee to the north, and, and it's a small village because of the region, right? that with the hilly region there, you just can't have these expansive towns. So it's a tiny place, the kind of place where everybody would have known everybody else. A small town in that way. In fact, it's, as it comes in the north of Galilee, I mean, the way this map goes out, that Jerusalem is down to the south, so Jerusalem is more at the bottom as it comes that way. And then Cana is way up at the top. Up at the top in there. In fact, Nazareth, where Jesus is from, is just below it. So, I mean, if you think of what we know so much in the Bible that happens in Jerusalem, down to the south there near the Dead Sea region, we're talking Galilee up in the north, and these are towns that are on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. So much of Jesus' ministry takes place in Galilee in Capernaum. Capernaum is right on the coast, on the lake of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum, because it's on a trade route, it's a fishing village, that's a bigger place. So Jesus spent time there with larger crowds. But Nazareth and Cana, further to the west, 
up in the hill country, tiny little places, not on trade routes, did not see a lot of traffic of people coming through. These are small towns. The custom then is that when a wedding would take place, the whole town was invited. Everybody got to come. Not just invited, but you know what? It was expected. If you were invited to a wedding in your town, you better be there. Everybody had better be there. It's not a surprise that Cana and Nazareth would share this together because they were so close together and they were both such small towns. So there's no surprise here at all that Jesus and Mary and the disciples who were in that region up there around Nazareth were attending this wedding that they were invited. In fact, they were expected to be there. Everyone was expected to be there. To not show up would have been a sign of disrespect and shame. And speaking of disrespect and shame, to run out of wine also would be a sign of shame and disrespect. You know, it's not that in that time that there were so many other options. It's not that wine was just one of the things on the menu among many, and okay, the wine's out, we'll just use coffee and water or whatever else. No, wine was the primary drink that they had for every meal, every gathering. So when the wine runs out at this wedding celebration in which the whole town is gathered, it effectively means um, this celebration is over. It's done. And it would be then also seen as a sign of shame for the family, for the host family that throws this. That it's not just a little mistake that, whoops, I'm sorry, no more wine, but all right, there is real shame and disrespect that goes on in that village if you have to tell all the guests, you know what, done, go, it's over. So Jesus is called in on this then, not just to save the day, but also then John is tipping us towards something more, right? That there's a sign in this miracle, in this activity, in this supernatural event, that John is using this as an example that pushes our attention further ahead to where Jesus is going that reveals something about Jesus being the Messiah. All right, a a couple features, a couple images that show up in this then that that help us understand how this comes about, okay? First of all, maybe it seems a little bit odd that, well, at first Jesus looks like he's deflecting the request, right? That Mary comes and says, hey, they've run out of wine, and Jesus says, why are you coming to me? Why involve me in this? Right? It's not my time yet. This is maybe just John's way of showing us the progression in how Jesus reveals himself as Messiah. Because, notice this, that in this miracle, unlike some of the other miracles, only a few people see it. Right? This is not the kind of miracle where Jesus stands up and, you know, clinks on the glass and gets everybody's attention and says, Now, everyone, I want you to see what I'm about to do here. Right? He doesn't do that at all. It's all kind of hushed behind the scenes. In fact, we get the picture here from the way John tells it that only the disciples and the servants who do the serving see what really happens. No one else catches it. The entire village is gathered there and no one else sees or knows what's happening, what Jesus is doing there, except disciples and servants. 
it's John's way of sort of tipping towards us that, you know what, this identity of Jesus as the Messiah is gradually revealed. At first, only a few people see it. That's sort of what's going on with that piece of the story. That Jesus comes in ways that, at first, people gradually start to see it, gradually start to know it. And then it builds from there because we're going to see by the time we get to miracles later that now everybody sees it. But at the beginning, only a few catch it. Only a few understand, even though everyone receives the blessing or the benefit of what Jesus does. They all receive it, but only a few see it and know it and understand it. So that's behind that piece of the story, right? The second thing I want us to notice about this story that is significant has to do with the jars that Jesus uses. John tells us a little something about that, right? There are six stone jars that are there, and he tells us these are jars that are used for ceremonial washing. That's not a small detail. That's a rather important detail in the story, that Jesus uses these water jars that are meant for washing. These are not the kind of jars that you serve food and drink out of. It's not kitchen dishware, I mean, this is your wash-up station. But we need to remember that for Old Testament Israel, the whole point of washing before you come to a meal had religious significance. That this all has roots that go way back to the law of Moses. In the law of Moses, there are all these rules for how it is that you're supposed to wash before coming to a meal so that you could be ceremonially clean and pure when you sit for a meal together. So the people would do this whenever they came together for a meal. It was very common then that every household would have these these washing stations, these jars for water that was just for this purpose. And it's not just proper physical hygiene washing, but, but they attached a religious significance to this as well. That this was spiritual cleansing as well as physical washing. Jesus then uses these symbols of spiritual cleansing, spiritual purity, as the way that he's going to bring about this first miracle, this first sign. He uses these six stone jars that they have there, symbols for purity. And then he comes before it by putting wine in that place. So besides just using water, he replaces it with wine. See, the the wine here then is is replacing the symbol of the water in a way that that doesn't abolish it, but fulfills it. it. It's not that Jesus smashes these stone jars and says, you know what, all of that religious stuff that you did in the Old Testament, it's gone now. He doesn't just dump out the water and say, you know what, you're done with that, it's over. Nope, he fulfills that in a way where he doesn't do away with it, but he replaces it and fulfills it with a new sign, a new covenant. Replacing the old sign of covenant purity that had to do with all these ritual washings which people had to do over and over and over again, which was also a part of their entire religious system of sacrifice 
over and over and over again, things that they would have to repeat constantly because they would always have to go back to this place of making themselves pure before God because their sin always made them unpure. It was a never-ending cycle. Jesus breaks the cycle. He says, you know what, we're not going to use these things for this never-ending cycle of washing away your impurity endlessly ever again. We're going to do something new. New in that instead of water, now it's going to be wine. And it's given as a gift. A gift in which Jesus purifies the people before God with a new kind of righteousness. Not something that washes them, but something that nourishes them. Right? It's not a cleaning anymore by washing away, but it's a cleaning by taking in, by being fed. The nourishment that comes from Jesus in that way. A gift of God's own righteousness in Jesus that's given for people to receive. Jesus uses this sign then to say something new is coming, to declare himself the Messiah, even though only a few people catch it at that time, at that place, in that moment. He's introducing us to something brand new that's coming along. And he does this in ways that show us, that show us where he's going what it will mean for us. Now, this is something that redefines the Messiah in some ways. You know, it's, I think we see in Scripture that in the New Testament, in the Gospels, so many of the Jewish people completely miss what God is doing through Jesus. So many people reject Jesus because their idea of a Messiah is something way different than what Jesus turns out to be. So because they were expecting a totally different kind of Messiah, they reject and dismiss Jesus. You see, John here is is after a place where where he knows that, and he recognizes that, and he knows, you know, it's, it's not just that I need to help people see that Jesus is the Messiah, but we also need to understand who the Messiah really is supposed to be what it is that God's Messiah was sent here to do, because that needs some correction as well, that people didn't understand that. I don't want us to pass over that too quickly. You know, we, we may have the tendency to do that, because we may be people who say, well, well, of course, they dismissed the Messiah. They didn't understand the Messiah because they rejected Jesus. But but we accept Jesus, so, so therefore, we must understand the Messiah, right? But, but look at the detail in the story here, that when we get to verse 11, we, we see that John says, you know, the people who saw it, the disciples, they saw what Jesus did and they believed, but at this point in the gospel story, do they really understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah? I don't think they get it yet. They believe, but you know what? In their minds, the minds of those disciples, there's still some work that has to happen to reshape in their own minds, in their own hearts, what the Messiah means. 
And maybe that's significant for us today as well. That even though we see Jesus, know Jesus, and believe, that maybe there's still some work for us to be reminded of what it means that Jesus is Messiah. What he came to do and how that impacts our lives, our world. We still see that today. The grace of God that comes here is provided by Jesus and it's given not just for those people in that time and in that place, but it's a gift for all. It's a gift for our world today. Jesus takes these six stone jars that are there and he tells the servants, you know, fill it. Fill it to the brim. And and John gives us the detail. These are large. They hold like 30 gallons. They're filled all the way to the brim. That's 180 gallons of wine. It's enough. It's not going to run out. They're not going to face this situation again where you know, you need to somehow keep going back again and again. Or, or they're not going to face a situation where it's limited inventory and this is only for a few. You need to be one of the select special people to get in on this. Nope, there's enough. There is inventory here for everyone who comes to Jesus. And it will not run out. It will not run dry. That Jesus performs a sign here that declares towards his identity of the Messiah that, you know what? There's enough grace for everyone who comes. It will not run out. It will never run dry. That Jesus is providing for all. And so the servants draw some of this out and they bring it to the master of the banquet and the master tastes it and he says, hey, this is the best stuff yet. Right? Again, John's giving us the detail there that what Jesus is providing is better than what was there before. That Jesus as the Messiah, fulfilling this Old Testament ritual image of washing and purifying over and over and over again, that Jesus comes and he says, I've got something better. Better than what you've done before. Something that will meet what you're searching for. Something that will fulfill what your needs are. That Jesus brings that in a way where we can see then not only purification for all that makes us impure, but also nourishment for our souls, which spiritually feeds us new life. If you were to go on past verse 11 in John 2, what you would see there is that uh, the very next story that happens is a story where Jesus actually goes down to Jerusalem for the Passover. So John jumps from this wedding straight to Passover in the way he tells his story. Passover then also being a significant observance for Jewish people, which also centered around a meal, a feast, also had wine as a significant symbol, a part of that meal. John is bringing that to our attention right away to say, you know what, I want you to see how important this symbol, this sign that Jesus brings with something simple like a beverage, like wine, has to do with God providing Jesus as Messiah for his world to save us. 
And it's at a Passover that would take place three years later after John 2 in which Jesus gathers in that upper room with his disciples and he takes that same Passover meal and he gives it new meaning, new purpose by taking that cup and that bread and saying, you know what? I'm giving this as something new, as a new covenant, but keep doing this in remembrance of me. And we do that yet today. In fact, we do that here this morning by coming to this communion table. A sign then, a reminder that, you know what, this thing that Jesus did to remind the people back then that he is the Messiah is something that we still need reminders of today. And we still do those reminders today. We still come before God needing to be reminded of all that it means that he is the Messiah who is for us. The grace then that comes through this is provided in a way that fulfills all who come, all who come to Jesus. Not just in that time and that place at that wedding, not just in the lifetime of Jesus when he was on earth in Israel, but in all time, in all place, even yet today. In this miraculous sign at Cana, God has made his grace then the main course, something which feeds all who come to him. And it's not by this habit of always having to wash and purify and prove that you're clean enough or good enough. All you have to do is come and receive what Jesus offers of his grace. And there is enough for everyone. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word and the reminder there that you are enough. Lord, we are, uh, we're sorry for the times when maybe we get stuck in the habit of thinking that we need to somehow make ourselves clean and pure and, and do that on our own and repeat that over and over again. So Lord, we pray today that as we now move to come before this table of communion, that we see this bread and this juice, that we remember in that that you have revealed yourself as the Messiah, that you have poured out a grace in abundance for all who come. And Lord, may we receive it in faith, knowing that all we have to do is believe that you have given this for us. Help us to do that in ways that steer our lives to always point in gratitude for all that you've done for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.